Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of January 20th, 2022. I'm Charles Hain, a filmmaker and writer and, and, and podcasty guy. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. And also podcasty guy. I am a podcasty guy. Oh, Hello, yeah, everybody. Podcasty guy. <laughs> and I'm here with filmmaker and podcasty gal, Kath Tolentino. Podcasty gal. Hello. Present. And we are, it's like nasty gal. Is that company still in business? Did she can't get canceled? On the I feel subject like she's canceled, yeah. I feel like she might be canceled. Regardless, on the subject of cancellation, the canceled Joss Whedon comes out with the public statement, I'm fine, to much <laughs> to much internet response. Then we're going to talk about the concept of intellectual copyright and NFTs and Dune and why some people are just flabbergastingly dumb. <laughs> it's the nicest thing you can say. Um <laughs> We have it's almost it's it's thing. like the producers. It's like a Mel Brooks plot. Oh my god, what's happening yeah. here? It's amazing. And then, yeah, somebody's already optioned it, right? I guarantee you, someone has optioned it. And <laughs> it's like, uh, that, oh James man, whoever, I'm jealous of whoever did and whoever yeah. will. Well, also, we'll get to this, but like, we can just make this movie, guys, because intellectual property doesn't matter to those people. <laughs> so, like, we, I claim it right now. I claimed it right now. I have the NFT for the story of the people who tried to get the copyright on Jodorowsky's Dune. I came to, I said it first. They do not Everybody's know what my are. <laughs> yes. Oh, NFT, boy. I have it. That's what it means. Nice fucking title. That's what it means. Titles. <laughs> We've got some cool stuff going in tech news, and then we have a fun Ask No Film School about like uh, starting a studio outside the studios. So yeah, all that and more this week on the No Film School podcast. So our top story this week, a couple years ago, Joss Whedon got canceled for basically being an asshole. The the quickest summary I can give of what happened a couple years ago is like 10 years ago, he got a divorce from his wife and his wife very publicly was like, you guys all think Joss Whedon is great, but he cheated on me all the time, including with actresses on his shows. And people were like, okay, that sucks, but we're still going to let you make big movies. And then on the making of Justice League, everyone was like, oh wow, this guy is a total asshole. And one specific actor, Ray Fisher, came out and was like, this dude is like an asshole to the point where I think it's kind of racist behavior, the way he treated me on that shoot and was very public about it in a way that like, I had a lot of respect for at the time because he, the man does not have a lot of credits. Like man was like, I don't care if this is career suicide. I don't like the way you treated me and fuck off. And you know, as is the staple in the cancellation cycle, cause no one's ever canceled, right? Louis CK is still touring and still has his house on Shelter Island, like cancellation, whatever. You just don't get to make hundreds of millions of dollars anymore. Boohoo. Part of the cycle is you, you know, you, you do the magazine interview where you, you come out and you're like, I made some mistakes and I've thought about it and like I'm a different person now and yada, yada, yada. And Joss Whedon came out this week with an interview in Vulture, the final line of which was like, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think I was one of the best showrunners there ever was. Like, I think I treated people really great. <laughs> I think everybody's wrong. And it's like, oh, it's like, first off, you have to give credit to the writer of that Vulture interview because like it's, it's an interview, so a lot of it is like quoting Joss Whedon, but it's like there's still structure in these things. They're still like putting things in order, and like oh, it's a perfect. You should just go read it in the Vulture because it's like it's so called the well. Undoing of Joss Whedon. The Buffy creator, once an icon of Hollywood feminism, is now an outcast accused of misogyny. How did he get here? By it's Lila so Shapiro. Good. It's like yeah, it's like really well. I respect to Shapiro. Like well, 
done in laying in like building trust with this person and laying it out. And I mean, here's the thing. No one is perfect. Everyone has made mistakes. Everyone has treated someone terribly in their life. I had to have a coworker call me last summer and they were like, I think you're coming off too aggressive in some meetings. And I was like, thank you. The pandemic has made this tough. It's zoom. I really appreciate it. I actually called him a month ago to be like, Hey, thank you for that call last summer. I really appreciate it. It's probably hard to say. I really take it as a sign of friendship that like, you let me know my tone was getting off in Zoom meetings because we're two years into a pandemic and like none of us are as good at this as we were two years ago because we're all mm-hmm. burnt out. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to recognize that you made mistakes. And like in the article, he admits, he's like, well, you know, yes, I did sleep with actresses on the show. And like to then not recognize that as like a workplace ethics violation and a like, like betrayal of your marriage and like all these other things. And then to be like, I actually think I was an amazing showrunner. It's just like such cognitive dissonance and such an unwillingness to like reckon with past mistakes that it's just flabbergasting. Uh, man, there's, you know, we've kind of circled the topic over time on this podcast. We talked about it when Fisher came out with his comments bravely. Uh, we talked about, the Snyder cut. We've talked about this whole thing. We've talked about cancel culture a little bit or consequence culture as it probably is more appropriately called, you know, and a quick thought on that. I always think about how you mentioned Louis CK still has, you know, all his money and whatever, but a lot of people who cross lines still get work. It's not like there is this hive mind, this woke mob doesn't have a central nervous system that can decide, ooh, we're never going to hire so-and-so ever again. Mel Gibson still gets hired. Nobody should be canceled harder or more permanently. I mean, he's got to be like (laughs) in the 1% of the 1% of offensive people who've crossed lines and shouldn't work if that was a thing. But the reality is it is not. So whatever people say about, you know, like, oh, you can't do this anymore. You can't do that. You'll never work again. Like, it's just not true. Like, it's not how it works. So I, I push back hard on the idea that that's how this system functions. I personally uh, never liked Joss Whedon, never liked a single thing he created, just from a standpoint <laughs> of taste. Always thought there was something snarky, pretentious, and kind of not, like, substantive. Uh, in particular, I hate the way he writes dialogue. I think it's cringeworthy, cringe as the kids today say. And I think it inspired a whole like quasi generational thing in writing where there's these kind of faux quips, faux witticisms that aren't really witticisms that I feel like it's a Gen X thing, but I see it in so many, so much television writing and it filters down and God, I cannot stand it. It's nails on a chalkboard for me. So I'm just putting it out there that like, I'm not unbiased in the sense that I don't like this guy. I knew his family sort of don't have anything personal against them. Knew one of his brothers as a kid, nothing personal. Again, Joss Whedon just grinds my gears. So I can't really say without that being a factor that like, like, I don't feel like I have an unbiased opinion of him, but I will say like, if you go into depth on this story and others, the things he did, the way he's, he treated people are definitely not cool, not acceptable, not 
a safe workplace. You can't be a good showrunner if you do these things. There are things like of female cast members who had rules about being around him. And yeah. the comment that that to me is the kind of the pull quote that story. What do you mean they had they, rules about being around him? Like, like there was a rule where, um, or like you no, know, like their parents were like, oh yeah, the, the, I will not let my kid be alone in a room with Joss Whedon because hmm. he freaked like them out. Of their team, yeah. yeah. He he crossed lines, and it was like if that doesn't tell you enough, it doesn't doesn't tell you everything. And yeah, once again, like there are no, there is no official Hollywood like, ooh, you crossed the line, we cancel you. Like they don't care. He's he was a god, as the article says. He was like untouchable. Hmm. Oh yeah, he was brought in to try and fix Justice League multiple years after the letter about what a terrible husband he was was out because he'd made so much money on Avengers, they thought he could fix Justice League. What I so there's like so many angles of this. One is that like, let's not forget, and they talk about this beautifully in the article, but like there was a point where Zack Snyder was in danger of being canceled because like 300, enjoyable movie, super fucking racist. Like the way in which the Persians are presented in that film, there were like protests from the Iranian government and like it's racist. And like Zack Snyder evolved. Like I don't feel like his recent film, I, I don't watch everything Zack Snyder does, although I've always kind of liked Zack Snyder stuff. I really still love his Dawn of the Dead. I know some people find that sacrilegious, but I enjoy it. Yeah, I'm um, low-key pro Zack Snyder. <laughs> so, like, he, he kept evolving and growing and was like, oh, the culture's changing and I'm going to evolve with it. And, like, you know, like, it's not like you're canceled and you're done forever. Like, you can do things that aren't perfect and then keep growing from them. And, like, this is the smallest thing, but he keeps calling a bathroom a loo because he went to high school in England. And I'm like, that was 40 fucking years ago. You don't get that. <laughs> like, I went to high school in Maryland and you don't hear me talking about like, let's get out the crab sauce for every goddamn meal. Like, Does he also use words know? like boot and aluminium? Oh my God. It was like, I mean, <laughs> that's it, pretty embarrassing. It was like, you know, I'm, I guarantee you in high school, I had some du- stupid English accent affectations as a guy who watched too much BBC and was socially <laughs> awkward, but like in high school and then now they're like, I'm an adult and hopefully I don't have them anymore. I mean, here's the thing. He comes off as a very damaged person. But being damaged does not give you an excuse to inflict damage on other people. Like it's it's our job as we grow mature to try and like reconcile with that, heal that, and not inflict it on others, regardless of whatever circumstances we came into. And like I mean, the lack of self re- reflection in it is astounding. I really don't want to. I, I want Kath, Kath. Can you? Can I just say one thing before you start? Because I just yeah, wanna, yeah. Before I forget my my train of thought here, I just have to throw this out there because we haven't covered it yet. While we've all been ranting, I just like he he says that Gal Gadot didn't understand him, and that's why she misinterpreted his his. the things he was saying and the way he was treating her, that it was a language barrier, which is really bad news. (laughs) And like, this guy is super rich, grew up rich, white privilege all over him. And to come out with that in this, where where you could have been apologetic, like, God damn. Okay, Kat, now. Well, I just think, look, President Trump, ex-President Trump, just held his first huge presidential style rally in Arizona last week. And tons of people came out and are still supporting him and love how awful he is. Like, we're all talking about how, like, you can't just be an asshole and then not apologize for it. Like, yes, you can. Like, you 100% can. Everyone is doing it now. And I think the the more profound conversation that we're getting to here is it's 2022. We've been experimenting with cancel culture now for the past few years. And it's clear that like our attempts to try and reform society are 
not working 100%, (laughs) right? Like, assholes will continue to be assholes. You know, people are still watching Woody Allen. He's still making movies. My aunt the other day was like, oh, have you seen Cafe Society? I was like, we're not allowed to watch Cafe Society. Like, don't talk about it. (laughs) And she's like, well, I thought it was a funny movie, you know? She's like, don't take away my freedom, Kath. Right? Like, I still... (laughs) listen to Michael Jackson songs, even though I'm not supposed to. It sucks. <sighs> Michael Jackson's a hard one. Michael like, Jackson's really that's, that's hard. Because the music's so good. It's but so, so good. terrible. It's tough one. <laughs> Everybody has their ones, right? Where it's just like, man, you got to take that one from me. Yeah. You make a really good point that it's it's kind of in. Like, there's definitely a place for it where you will thrive doing it. And Joss Whedon could probably join a whole list of like second rate talents who make their careers now going on Fox News. And, you know, if he really <laughs> wants to go whole hog here, like he, I mean, I know he's super liberal, so he wouldn't do that. But like, you know, there's I a mean, place. I mean, we would have thought Louis C.K. was super liberal before this thing happened. And now right. he's out there. Lean like, into it, know. man. Joe Rogan well, no, podcast. The truth is, I think people go where they find comfort and acceptance. Yeah. And, I and think money. That, yeah. And I think that, yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it's entirely, po- I, I would not be surprised to discover a radical swing to where Joss Whedon feels people are accepting. The thing is that that's interesting to me to think about is like. He could make an Atlas the, Shrugged movie with Gina Carano and all those. And, you know, the guy who played Hercules. Kevin Sorbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting together a dream team. Scott Bayo. <laughs> Dude, you've got to get you've got to get a piece of this packaging. If you put together this Capeo, Gina Carano, Atlas Shrugged. Hashtag I mean, the thing is, gotta... like, it's true. The thing is, like, there's a big audience for that. So somebody, who, whoever wants to do that, like, that audience exists. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many people who are fans of Joss Whedon probably don't care that he's an asshole. Well, no, but the interesting thing particular about Josh Whedon, and they, again, talk about this in the article, is that like, People who are fans of Joss Whedon are also people who are primed to be mad about this. Like, he presented himself as a feminist. He presented mm. Buffy as a feminist text. There were academic conferences about Buffy as a feminist text. Like, I think the reason why this has been the, as big a story as it has been is because it's the conflict between, like, publicly stated intentions and personal activity. Like, I think that, like, mm. if it turned out that, you know, it's like uh, it's like finding out... You know, like uh, you read a, a biography of Angelica Houston and you're like, oh, wow, Jack Nicholson really cheated on her a lot. But you're like, well, yeah, but that's also Jack Nicholson's brand. It's like, OK, I'm not going to like it's like he, he, he made it very obvious that that was going to be his thing. And then that was his sure. thing. But like the betrayal, I think that a lot of people feel in this case is they feel like, oh, no, you were actually not Jack Nicholson. You were Joss Whedon. And yet you wanted to be Jack Nicholson. And mm. when you got the opportunity to you felt like you had to because you'd always wanted the opportunity to. Mm. And and I think that's what. You're reminding me that so much of everything culturally is context. And it's very hard to wrap our minds around that because if we try to show people today, again, 
a movie is an easy example, given that we're on the No Film School podcast, but we could talk about books forever. If you try to show someone a movie from the 1930s today, you really have to contextualize the way women are treated, the way black people are characterized, the way the white dominant male cultures, like otherwise they're just going to walk away and see it. Oh, there's a really good chance that they'll walk away and see it as like completely out of touch mm-hmm. and not be able to get at whatever value might be there. Now, maybe there isn't any, but like, but like these are the context, like it's just everything. And Joss Whedon does sort of his career in its context straddles an important shift in the culture. So, you know, some people were forward thinking and made movies in the 50s that portrayed a more positive view of African-Americans than Mm -hmm. the rest of the country did, or certainly half of it did. So you can always be ahead of the game. You can always be, but, but still context, you know, like then it took, it took a while for that to catch on. And when you talk to people who actually live in the bodies or the experiences that are not white male, cisgendered, dominant, hetero culture that we are, that dictates the monoculture we're familiar with, then you're going to hear a whole different thing, which is like, yeah, there was one movie in 1956. Great. That's not how I felt. It's not how I feel now in 2022, you know? So it's a big, this is a big thing. Man, you're making my transition to the next topic really hard by being all serious. There were like four <laughs> points in there. I had like jokes, but then you like got me all like, so I'm going to try and make a joke there. So speaking of context and people who clearly don't know how to read a room, <laughs> nice. the next subject nice. up is a bunch of meme lords <laughs> bought the physical copy of a book and did not understand that buying the physical copy of a book does not give you the rights to the intellectual property of a book, which is like some flabbergasting bullshit. So I'm on the record as being very anti-NFT. I'm going to say it again on this podcast. NFTs are a scam. If you want to come at me about that on Twitter, just for a moment realize you are being scammed and think about that and then come at me about uh, about that on Twitter. Because MF- NFTs are a scam. They're, they're a my, last man standing scam. They're my favorite meme of, of the modern meme sub- meme culture right now is the one of just screenshotting the NFTs and people being angry. I love that one. It's so good. So a whole bunch of people put together Spice Coin. Ooh, Spice Coin. Spicy. (laughs) To buy the, you know, uh, and like there's some interesting filmmaking angles in this. So Jodorowsky, a controversial French-Mexican filmmaker, put together like a pitch book working with the artist Mobius and some others of like his vision for Dune, the book that just came out from Denis Villeneuve as another movie today. And it was a, you know, it was a beautiful pitch book. It was bound. They made 10 for the 10, for 10 very screw people. Now, famously, Jodorowsky did not get to make Dune in 1972. Dune was first filmed by Denny Villeneuve a couple of years ago and came out during the pandemic. So, uh, you if, know, you know, first filmed in 1984 oh, David yeah, with David Lynch. Yeah. David Lynch. Yes. Completely forgot space. I'm not, I'm not a spice expert. So thank yeah. you for the correction. Poor David so, Lynch. The, uh, no. <laughs> Originally written by Frank Herbert. I'm a Dune expert. So sad. <laughs> I, I love me some David Lynch. I love me some her- 80s David Lynch is so strong. Anyway, so these people put together Spicecoin and people invested in Spicecoin to go buy a copy of Jodorowsky's Dune. There's like 10 in the world. I think eight are left. They bought one. The last one sold at auction for like $40,000 and they bought this one for like $2.6 So I think they might have overpaid. 
especially because the book is already scanned on Google Images. You can just go see it and look at it. But they and didn't overpay if they if they were actually paying for what they thought they were paying for. <laughs> so they thought buying this copy gave them the rights to the content of the work so that they were going to try and make an animated TV show using the contents of the book, which is wait, what wait, they okay. thought they were buying. I think we need to read their heroic sounding yes, tweet to really yeah, provide it's really the really good. <laughs> so they, they post a photo of this hardback copy of Dune which features Jodorowsky's, I don't know, artwork or whatever, that they have now purchased for $2.6 million. They say, we won the auction for 2.66 million euro. Sorry, euro. Now our mission is to, one, make the book public, in parentheses, to the extent permitted by law. (laughs) Two, produce an original animated limited series inspired by the book and sell it to a streaming service. And three, support derivative projects from the community. <laughs> <laughs> it's look, we're laughing, but don't be these guys in life or ga- guys and girls. Like, don't like, be ca- <laughs> like, I mean, who's going to put together this kind of money? Like, I don't know. As I say that, I'm like, who even can make this level of mistake? But I, it's just like understanding, haven't we talked so much about like how to option something or who to talk to about making sure you have chain of title and, being careful about like, this is baffling to me. This is a baffling mistake to have made. It almost like Kath, like you said, is it a joke? It feels like it's a joke. Well, this is what's so weird about it is like, then I don't know. Then there's this. Okay. So first of all, you can go to the auction site. It's a Christie's auction. And it's true that someone bought this copy of Dune for 2.6 euro million euros. And then, but then the tweet there's like a follow-up tweet that seems like maybe it was a joke. I hope it was. I hope we find out it was because it's just so sad and wasteful and ridiculous. It would be funny. You know if what? It was a joke. You guys, this might be a joke because this this auction closed November twenty first of last year, and this tweet didn't come out until a few days ago. Hmm. Well, oh we'll my God, no- are we realizing that we've been scammed by NFTs too in real time? <laughs> well, we didn't spend you anything. Guys all just- you can't be, you no, can't be we conned. we spent time. Well, yeah. We spent time. time. This is our well, we got content. <laughs> we had and fun and we got content. I think we well, just yes. got strolled. Well, look, That's see, true. here's the follow-up tweet. You guys, you could do your own doing journalism. journalism. Yeah. Here's another tweet from what them from the- 16 hours ago. They say, Okay, so hear me out. What if we buy the book, right? Because it's a historical artifact, right? We all like buy it, right? The Dow buys it. We raised so much money and built such a strong community. We decided to make a totally new animated series with original IP that we create. That to me feels like, okay, these guys are trolling us. No, that for me seems like they, like, they got a whole lot of mean tweets about intellectual property. And then they were like, Ooh, what if the real NFT was the friends we made along the way and make an animated <laughs> show together? I love the uh, idea, though, that some people are so like stuck in this like world of the future where they're like buying property on Earth 2.0 that they completely forget about what a book even is. Just like have no idea what a book is or what it means. 
I, you, it's funny you say buying property on Earth 2.0. This is kind of, we're getting far afield, but this is just where my mind is going. But I am fascinated, always have been, by con artists of the, of the 19th and early 20th century because you could really, like, you know the thing, like, if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. <laughs> like, people really did. There's like a con that was run in New York con- consistently where people would sell bridges. They'd be like, oh yeah, you could, like, and they would like make up false documentation, take the money and leave. And like the, the people land, like the, there were so many cons that were run that were somewhat easy because of the accessibility of certain information. And I just think that we are entering a new golden age of the con right now oh, yeah. because people don't understand these things and how they work. And it's not just NFTs. It's also cryptocurrency. Like there's this, there is a very dangerous potential to be scammed for a lot of mm-hmm. money. And it's, and because there's like the the paper trail, like we're just in a wild, wild west and I kind of love it. Like I'm, I'm conservative about these kinds of things. So like, I'm not going to touch it, but I'm watching it and I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Like I'm, I saw a story the other day, they renamed the Staples Center in Los Angeles, the crypto something or other.com. And apparently that company is immediately like having weird financial trouble. They just committed billions of dollars to the name. And there was this sudden thing, like everybody who had their wallet through that thing, like couldn't access their, their money or something. And I, I don't have the story, so I can't, this is all me like going from memory, but I'm fascinated by this. It's definitely going to keep impacting filmmaking. Like keep an eye out for that. Arena. Yes. I can't believe this is real. Crypto.com arena. That's mm-hmm. nuts. Yes. But but again, like it's going to keep impacting filmmaking because one place that con artists love to go is entertainment and raise money and not do things and not follow through and or you know, there's it's like like any industry, it's not unique. I told but, you I had lunch with a con artist, right? Tell me. Tell What's me that all story? About one of uh, <laughs> one of my students one of my students had found this con artist that was going to help him raise money for a feature. And he sent, and my student sent me this guy's info. And I was like, this is a con artist. And my student was like, I don't know. I don't think he is. And I was like, <laughs> no, this con artist. And he was like, well, why don't you just have lunch with him? And I was like, I would love to have lunch with a con artist. <laughs> so I met him somewhere on the sunset strip. And it was like, just one long like it was like you know december and he was telling me how he'd been invited to the maximum new year's eve party and how he was working with like you know mexican railroad bonds and like he worked (laughs) up this system using the singaporean stock exchange where you put in one tenth of your budget and then it got leveraged in singapore and you got your whole budget back so all you needed to do was put in a hundred grand and then you'd have a million to make your movie with sounds like a can't miss deal that's nuts. It was a fa- it was like the most fascinating hour of my life because he just never I mean it's like when you watch Trump talk like right. any question doesn't get answered anything it's just like it's just like you are constantly swinging to the other thing and like half the things I hadn't heard of so I was like trying to take notes and then I went home and I was like what is a Mexican railroad bond and you know the first thing on Google is like it is a massive scam and I was yeah. like yeah like there is no method just for everybody listening and for my student who as far as I know never put a hundred thousand dollars and into that project, there's no scam where you put in 10% of your budget and you get 100% back. Because if that existed, rich people would just do that all day. That, that That's not a thing. But the, I do think that there's some avenues that filmmakers should pursue in terms of crypto. There's that great joke in 30 yes. Rock about how Tracy Morgan survived the financial crash by inventing investing in companies that took down and put up bank signs. And I've been thinking, 
like a couple of years ago, I had this idea where I was going to shoot a lot of stock footage for blockchain and Bitcoin because I was like, there's going to be a lot of news stories about it. I should shoot some stock footage for it. And two or three years later, I'm like, shit, man, there's going to be so many stories about blockchain and Bitcoin. And here's my idea, and you should all do it. You should all go out and build some sort of visual representation of blockchain and Bitcoin and mm. shoot a bunch of still video of knocking it over with hammers, blowing it up, setting it on fire. And I guarantee you, you will get some sales to news stories when blockchain and crypto melts down and they need some sort of like video to run for the news thing of like mm. crypto explodes. So like build a crypto thing out of Legos, knock it over, shoot it on video, make some money. <laughs> I just, I, that's a good call. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of value in crypto to raise, to, like you could, but be smart, obviously. And I think that we've had, we had guests on talking about filmmakers, blockchain, like there's, there's definitely an avenue and an angle that's kosher or that protects you, but you got to be smart. And there are some sayings in the crypto community too. I think about like, not your keys or your wallet. Like you have to be careful what you're willing to put in there, you know? Um, Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I've got well, uh, twenty dollars in Dogecoin. <laughs> Ooh, I respect that. I respect the twenty dollars in Dogecoin. I would get twenty dollars in Dogecoin on a T-shirt. Oh yeah, but I just you know I just the, love Doge yeah. and I want to support him. <laughs> he's, he's, he's just dead. so he's just so cute. Wait, what? He's dead. Oh, the no. original Shiba Inu of Doge is dead. That makes me really sad. The one frustrating thing is that I can't get into my Coinbase wallet. I've been locked out for like the past few weeks. I don't know what happened. That is concerning. I do want to bring us back though, because I was just Googling around and you guys, this might actually be real. Okay. There's a BuzzFeed article <laughs> about, about what that goes into this purchase. And it turns out, yes, the, the BuzzFeed article came out in December. So I don't know why the news just hit us now. But yeah, it sounds like it was a cryptocurrency nerd NFT collector from Woodland, California, who made this winning bid. And anyways, this is well, I have the I have the editorial team at No Film School like on Slack on hold because I'm like, I don't know. Let's make sure we have the, the information. We're like live journalism <laughs> journalismming it on the podcast. So nice it sounds work. like it sounds like if this BuzzFeed article is real, it's yeah, this is real. So these guys were so obsessed with NFTs, they forgot what a book was. That's what I love about this story. That is it's like, one, for, right, it's one for the ages, that's for sure. <laughs> all right, moving on to tech news, tech news. So um, tech news today is a little bit outside the wheelhouse. Usually we try and do stuff that I think most of you will end up using, but there's a cool thing out that I want most people to be aware of that, that many of you won't use, but you should be aware is coming out. And that is, you know, we, we've seen a lot of disruption in a lot of different spaces in the last couple of years, like autofocus is getting better and, and all sorts of other things. And camera car cranes are about to get more affordable for indies, and that has me super excited. So what is a camera car crane? You want a shot moving, you're shooting car to car, maybe you're doing an action film like Fast and the Furious, maybe you're doing a car commercial, whatever it is, you're usually mounting the camera to a crane on a follow car. So you have like, the picture car, which is in picture, and then you have the camera car, the chase car, which has a camera mounted to it, and you put it on a crane. So first off, you can get it closer to another car, but also so you can move it around, so you can have those like sweeping over the hood shots. And uh, you'll hear these called a Russian arm sometimes, because one of the initial products was originally called a Russian arm, but there's a lot of competitors out there now. And into this space, a brand new crane is launched called Top Crane. Now, it's $100,000. So that is obviously something most of us are not going to buy. But 
a crane that you can literally stick on any car that is fully gyro stabilized that works with any head, like works with a Ronin two head, works with like a wide variety of heads is kind of an amazing price feature, like quality combination and makes it more likely that like when you have that in- indie feature and you have a car scene, you're going to be able to like find a budget to get it because it'll be cheaper to rent because it was less for the person to buy. It's also really nice because it packs up into just like five cases and will attach to pretty much anything with like four wheels or a rudder. So you're not stuck with a lot of times a camera crane, you're getting like the crane and a Porsche take on or something with like very good suspension and a lot of speed. And like, this is like, Oh no, you can just get it and like take it with you to wherever you're going and stick it on the rental car, which probably violates your rental car insurance, but you, you have a lot more flexibility. So I think it's just interesting to remember that like disruption, it comes to all spaces. Like it's not just that cameras get cooler. It's also like, Oh, camera cranes are also getting cooler and like more affordable and interesting. And this one's made in California, which is pretty slick. Contextually, like, what's the history of pricing on camera cranes? Like, what's the rental like? Usually, what what would it have been five years so ago? So you're usually last year. You are usually paying for an operator, a crane, and a car at like ten grand a day, or twenty, depending upon the car and the crane. So this is, you know, a hundred thousand dollar crane. If you finance it so that you're paying it off over four years, that's what two grand a month. So if they're trying to get two or three rentals a month out of it, they're probably renting it out for like a grand or two a day as opposed to 10 to 20 grand. So it's like an order of magnitude difference depending upon how much profit they're trying to make off of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that is definitely a significant difference in terms of accessibility to more filmmakers. Like, yeah. large difference. But still out of the range of like, you know, your... I'm not buying one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. right. Yeah, nobody knows going to buy one. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's like a crazy cool toy that still very few people can actually afford or utilize, but it's far more affordable. Am I, you know, is this essentially the deal than it would have been maybe more to a low-range, mid-range project? Yeah. I mean, for me, the interesting thing about this for indie filmmakers is like, if you are out there and you're like, oh my God, my obsession is car movies and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to do a quarter million dollar car movie, this puts a type of dynamic shot in your wheelhouse where you don't have to buy one, but you find someone you know who's bought one and you can rent it for three weeks and do amazing stuff, rigging it to like the car you might already own. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, for like indie stuff, I think there's a real interesting thing. I also think, I mean, for me, the travel aspect is the big thing is that it packs up small and can mount to pretty much anything and i'm like oh okay this is pretty slick cool yeah no that's that's exciting moving on to ask no film school our weirdest ask no film school in a while nate davidson has launched light motion and audio and as a question it's a little long and i'm going to try and summarize it i hope i get the summary right light motion and audio wants to be a test bed for teaching supporting and mentoring producers and those interested in the film business to help them move into a larger market. So I, I get that like a club or an organization. But I also, there's sort of an angle that's like trying to find a way to offer below the line, the line crew year-round production. And what I think you're saying is 
Part of the goal of Light Motion Audio is to build a regular crew that is available for hire. You even say the Harlem Globetrotters are film crews. Although, frankly, let's be real, the Har- Harlem Globetrotters might be great performers, but not necessarily phenomenal at basketball, although some of them are. <laughs> um, but they, but they, do work, they do No, but the Harlem Globetrotters actually do work very well together putting on a show. Somebody's got to run out with the ladder. Somebody's got it. Like, there's, there's stuff they do. True. So a machine that's honed and tuned for perfect performance. So what I think you're proposing for light motion audio is building a regular crew that is available as a full crew to get rented out to other productions, which is possible, but tricky. So here's the thing. The dream of that is, is similar to the dream of like a lot of people who start production companies is you think, okay, I'm going to start a production company and I'm going to build up a base of clients that are hiring me to do work. And then those clients are hiring me to deliver on these projects. And then I have like an editor on staff and I have, so I don't have to keep hiring a freelance editor every time I have an editor on staff and they're getting salary. They're probably making a little less than they would because they're on staff, but they're getting salary and health insurance and bennies. They like the stability. I get the benefit of their work and you build a team that delivers on all your projects. That's sort of the dream of a lot of production companies. And that's not an uncommon function also at the higher ends of production, like on big studio movies. You hire the key grip, and the key grip has their whole grip team that they take from movie to movie to movie. And since all of the payroll is handled by a payroll company and all the insurance is hired by a union, like they get continuity of insurance as they go production to production to production. So what it sounds like is you want to find a way to to sort of build a crack crew that's available for work on more like indie projects. Like you're not going to the big studio projects. You're like, okay, these smaller projects might still want to have access to and frankly, like as a freelance DP, have there been times in my career where I wished that I just had a regular crew that I could call every time and I knew exactly the rate they would show up and kill it? Absolutely. The problem is, as I see it, and maybe George will have a better view on this, is that <clears> like <throat> production scheduling is fucking chaos. Like the reason why I never had a regular enough crew is because I was never busy enough to hold them. Like if I was shooting four commercials a month or four music videos a month or four things a month, I would have a regular crew because I'd be giving them their full rates often enough. They would pass on other jobs for me, but I never got that busy. I would shoot one or two things a month. I would go a month without shooting. Then I'd have three things the next month. And so like my crew would always go off and do something else. And so your dream seems to be, I'll have a crew and they'll be on salary and healthcare and benefits and insurance through me and other productions will come in and hire us. But I have a sneaking suspicion that, scheduling will just become a screaming nightmare where you're like, okay, we're a crew. And then a feature comes and is like, Hey, we want to book you for three months. But then you're like, Oh, but we already booked like two days on this one commercial and two days on this other commercial. And the feature is like, no, we want you the whole time. Like, I think it's like, I, I love the dream. I, I don't know how that would necessarily work in reality. It's a, it's a tricky one. I also love the dream. I think it's, it's sort of like you want to build a consistent ecosystem and you want it to support the people in it and what they do and their regular hours in life and have consistency so they can, you want to turn it into something where filmmakers are punching a a time card on a clock and they can live a normal life. I think that's part of the inspiration here. The hard part is, I guess everything Charles says, there's hard, other hard parts. One is that people don't always want to do the same things. So a lot of what works in this industry is someone will kind of 
move through a department or up along the chain on a department or maybe jump to a new department. Um, what yours, what your model sounds a little bit to me like is sort of a perfect version of the studio system where, you know, you worked at Warner Brothers and you did, you know, maybe you were a, a gaffer at Warner Brothers, but you were gaffing on whatever Warners was in production on, right? They would just like over on stage, blah, blah, blah. You'd go in and you're gaffing on this. And then tomorrow you're, we need you over on stage, blah, blah. And that's what the idea of like central casting. And that's even the talent on screen, like the stars, they would be like loaned out. But basically, you know, they worked at a movie factory. And there were a certain number of movie factories and you did certain jobs there and you stayed in on your team in your factory. And it, I think the problem was it became limiting to the artists who wanted the freedom to take better gigs or change their role or so it, I guess it kind of depends. I don't want to get too like, uh, like, into the sociological aspect of it, but like there's a, there's a co-op aspect to what you present or the perfect version of it where people are like, I just want to be, I just want to work in a movie factory where we're all well-treated and we're making good stuff and we're working year round and we go home at night. And there's probably a lot of people who would do that. And I think that the, that the way things are changing so much, you might be able to book five days a week, 50 some weeks a year, maybe 45 weeks a year. I don't, know, I don't know what the plan is, but you might be able to have content that needs producing production services year round or close to it. So you could support that. And, and then the, the crazy scheduling Charles is talking about, I think you'd have like someone who is basically putting together that Tetris board of moving around the project and the people to make it work. It's possible. What I see is sort of the, the fly in the ointment could be that there are people who are like, well, I don't just want to grip. Like, I lo- I'm fine with that, but like, I want to start doing this. Well, we already have people doing this. Like, we can't, you know, it, that's that's where it could get tricky. But I love the inspiration behind it. I love that our podcast and our discussion about creating an, a more, I want to say equilibrium, but a more balanced and uh, balanced work life, but also like balanced across the board on a production team culture inspired your thinking. So yeah, yeah, I I don't have, I don't think we have an answer really. I mean, I just want to drop a little marks into the chat, which is, it feels like it's going towards marks. (laughs) Like the, the, the thing you just said is like, you need to hire someone to do the Tetris board is vital. Like this is the kind of like, I can just say as someone who ran a production company for five years, like I relate to all of this, right? Like we eventually had like 10 people on salary and like, edit, like not crew people, like with post skills and, and, uh, and like office management skills and stuff, because I knew I could book enough work regularly in posts to keep all those people busy. And actually I'm going to argue with you, George, sometimes the ambition helps them stay around. We definitely had editors that edited with us because we let them direct sometimes and they mm, were editors yeah, who wanted right. to direct and that helped them stay with us. But, the Tetris piece is the hardest part. The moving all the pieces around is real labor. And because of that, you're going to have to charge clients more. So, or you're going to have to pay your people less. Like, let's just, I'm just going to throw out a bunch of random numbers. Let's say, and I'm going to pretend everybody on set's making the same amount. Let's say everybody, let's say the client wants to pay everyone $500 a day. You're either going to have to talk the client into paying $600 a day because you have to pay that extra person to do all the coordination and scheduling. Or you're going to have to take the 500 a day from a client and pay everyone internally 400 a day because you need that margin to justify having like 
dedicated scheduling teams figuring out what crew's going where. And then it's going to be really hard for you to land clients if you're charging more. But it's also going to be really hard for you to keep talent if they're making less working for you than if they just worked out there in the marketplace. Because all that scheduling still happens in the marketplace, but it happens invisibly at the end of the day or during your lunch break or whatever, where you're emailing someone about the next job. So I think it's going to be very hard to set up because of that. Like, basically, the reason why it's a Marx thing is it's surplus labor value, right? It's like the argument then becomes like, where does the management fee come from? Right. But, and, and the, I think that also ties into like, what's the profit margin in general on what you're doing? You know, if you're taking in, do you take production services fee as a, like maybe, maybe the Tetris board person who is, we'll call them your project manager or production manager, maybe their rate comes in as part of what your services are. Like, so if someone wants to use your team and your services, they're going to pay this small premium, which probably everywhere is going to have some. You know, like every production company is going to take something because maybe, you know, there's the whole hybridized agent or manager production company where a manager will book, you know, a thing for their client and then they will be service executive producer. So they get a fee for that. Plus they're taking 10% of the, of whatever they negotiated for their clients who are writing it. And that's, and so, yeah, they're also executive producer and blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of ways people slice up the pie of a budget before it gets down to below the line, but to create equanimity (laughs) uh, below the line and to be fair and to also provide value service. Yeah. It's a tough balancing act. I would think I don't envy the the task, but I admire the goal. I mean, I, I can tell you this, I would love as a client for this to exist and I can guarantee you would fucking hate me because I guarantee because, you know, my I've never, I would love to have been so busy that I would be a great client where I was calling you all the time and I was super busy and I just kept your team full. But I, you know, the busiest I've ever gotten, there might be one month where I had like two random days and then I, you didn't hear from me for three months. And then I was like, oh, hey, are they available for like four days that next month or whatever? And I guarantee there would be a lot of clients like me because that's the nature of production. And there'd be a smaller yeah. number of... You know, I think what dream would yeah, be I think what you're bringing some up some sort of regular cor- corporate client. You'd find like, oh, this one venue where we do their stage shows or something. Right. And then that is the bulk of your income for a year and it pays your overhead and your premium. And then you pick up little things and that creates like a margin. I would also say the other big problem is the hurry up and wait factor, which is why I was thinking about you, Charles, saying like, one of the problems is that like I would say, oh, I've got a little thing for four days and I suddenly have it. And it may, it reminded me that there's so much stop and go. Like, you know, creatives or producer could have something and be like, we're going to start in, you know, four weeks and then two weeks go by and you're like, we're pushing for six weeks. And then it comes to the six weeks and you're like, yeah, we can't afford you anymore. We're going, <laughs> we're going in a different way. Oh, the executive who greenlit us got fired. Like I, like all these things are normal things to have happen. So until like, like people always say, like, until the check's cleared, until the camera rolls, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, insert cliche here, like you never know. So that other thing of the Tetris board is just, it's such an uncertainty that you could have everybody there who's supposed to be working this week and then suddenly they're not and there's nothing to fill the gap, right? Man, I, it just sounds, I feel like we've been a bummer on this one. I mean, I, I, this is, I teach a whole like, 
I teach a whole film business class where I like have my students pitch their business ideas. And like, this is one of the better ones I've heard. No, none of my students have had this idea. I like it conceptually as an idea, but I have to be as hard as it as I am on those students' ideas. And like, these are the things that make me nervous about it. On the flip side, these are all the problems I still have with a production company, and I'm still so glad I started it. And I still had an amazing experience running it, and I still learned so much. And the production company is still in business and winning awards. So, like, you know, just because it's hard, just because two grumpy middle aged men are like, this is going to be hard for X reasons, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I mean, there is, <laughs> like, I, I read a really interesting. Yeah, everything is hard, and I don't think you should do it. That's kind of my MO. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also, I read this great article once that was like, the reason why so many companies are started by people in their 20s isn't just that you don't usually have kids <laughs> yet, and so it's easier. But it's also like, you're just too dumb to know how hard it's going to be. And like, I was so, when I started my production company, which is now like continues to be very successful, I was too dumb to know how hard it would be. I just was, I just did not know that it was going to be as hard as it was. And it works. So like there is potentially a way for this to work, but it's going to work best. It's going to work. Here's the thing. I think the other problem is figuring out how you bootstrap it. Like, how do you start it slowly? And the key, I guess, is like you you decide what avenue you're going to take. I'm going to be a best grip or a best electric, and you're going to start building a team of people and looking for clients and slowly build it up over time with the goal of eventually pivoting and saying, all right, guys, I'm willing to put you on salary, and then we go out together on these jobs. I actually and that's know. Like a slow way to build it. I know how you can start it. I know how you can bootstrap it. You buy a copy of a book a hard copy of a book and you own the rights <laughs> and, you just, and you just start making shows out of that book. <laughs> Buy something popular, like, you know, gone with the wind, but make sure yeah, it's a hard totally. copy. Or, um, also I hear, uh, you know, um, what is it? Uh, Gatsby's now public domain. So maybe you could do something with that. People like Gatsby. <laughs> All right. Well, that was this week on the no film school podcast. What a great callback to wrap it up with. I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain, all of those places. So, uh, talk to you guys soon. You can find me at katherinetolentino.com. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can read about a lot of the things we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. We'll put some of the stories we've mentioned in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagram and YouTube channels. Thank you guys so much for listening. Mm -hmm.